Today's from Acts 19, verse 11 to 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the inerrant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Tyler, and thank you, Joe, for sharing. And by the way, uh, when people go to your house, Joe, they're not going for you, if that makes you feel any better. Um, well, it's been a, a great morning where we've gotten to really celebrate uh, what God is doing. We've gotten to celebrate the incredible power of his gospel, and I want us to continue in that as we look in the book of Acts. You know, I was reminded of something the other day. My, my oldest son has started piano lessons. This is a rule in our house. This is a rule in my own house growing up. And so this is a rule in our house that basically every kid from the age of six to at least the sixth grade has to take piano lessons, whether they want to or not. It's one of my cruel things that I get to do as a dad. Um, after that, if they don't want to continue, that's fine. They don't have to. Uh, they're allowed to take other music lessons if they're interested in that, but they have to stick with piano until the sixth grade. And uh, what made me think of it was, because I had to do that, and my son is seven, my oldest son is seven, and he doesn't like practicing the piano, and neither did I. Like, practicing piano was, was grueling as a kid. All I wanted to do was be playing or building Legos or running around or literally doing just about anything other than play music. And... Um, Thinking through that and kind of asking the question, what changed? Because all of it, obviously music became a big part of my life at some point in time. But when it started, it was just one of the many things that I would do. I would practice piano, I would play baseball, I would do a bunch of other stuff. But it was probably about four years into piano lessons where something began to shift. Some of it was because I became a little more comfortable playing piano. I learned a little bit more, so it became a little more fun. But I realized something about music. See, you don't have to just play what's on the sheet in front of you. I learned that in music, you can actually create things. You can actually write. You can actually develop something kind of just from scratch and, and go on and, and create music. And that love of creating music, that love of songwriting and, and other things like that that, that, that caught me at a very young age. And it became one of the deep loves of my life. The kind of love, the kind of affection, the kind of commitment that kind of pushes out other things. I didn't really play sports growing up because I was too busy playing music. Now, I also was uncoordinated and not very athletic, so that didn't help. But I, I would choose to do a lot of, I choose to not do a lot of other things because I loved playing music. I loved creating music. I loved writing music. I loved the relationships that formed around music. 
Well, my friends wanted to play video games. I wanted to play guitar. When they wanted to go see movies, I would want to like jam as a band. In college, instead of going and doing overseas uh, study and stuff like that, we had some opportunities to do that, and I didn't because I was committed to a band that I was in at the time. This is a love that I have for something that have expelled the other loves that I could have had at the time. It disciplined me. It shaped me. It focused me. Thomas Chalmers was a um, British theologian, and he wrote this incredible article called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. This article was, it was written really to, to confront the way that people were preaching at the time. And he begins by basically making the statement that everybody, every single person was meant to love something deeply. That we are incapable of, of not loving something, of not being aimed towards something, not being drawn towards something. And the reason he brought this up is because so much of the time there was very moralistic preaching where they were saying, no, you just need to stop loving the things of this world. And he was saying, well, that's really an impossible ask if you're not replacing it with something that's a deeper love, that a, that's a better love. You say, it's not enough to ask people to leave their former lives. It's not enough to ask people to stop loving the things of the world. But we need to be asking them to love the better things of God. He writes this. He says, in a word, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascended object is to fasten it in positive love to another, then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter that all old, thing, old things are to be done away and all things are to become new. This is the expulsive power of a new affection. That when we become more in love with who Christ is and what he has done, that is ultimately what helps us to leave and move away from these other things and away from these other commitments. The reason I, I say this is because I think that this is a helpful rubric for understanding the stories that we're going to read. In all of these cases, and they're all different, they're all kind of people at different places in the life of faith, but every single one of them is moved to greater depths with Christ, not by being exposed to how flawed they are there, but by being exposed to how great Christ is in those circumstances. So I want us to read this and see how Jesus truly is an expelling power. He is an expelling presence, that he is what causes people to leave their former lives, former selves, and draw them in. And it's not because you abandon your loves, but because you are captured by a greater love. Starting in verse uh, 24 of chapter 18, we're going to be walking through a few of these sections. Starting in verse 24, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ 
was Jesus. So what we see for Apollos is what drives him in to a deeper relationship with Christ is being exposed to the greater knowledge of who Jesus was and how he fit into the world. A little bit of background on Apollos. So Apollos is somebody who you don't see as much in Acts, but you will see him show up again in some of the letters that Paul writes. Apollos ultimately becomes one of the great preachers and evangelists of the time along with Paul. And what we know of him is he has somewhat of a similar background to Paul. So it says that he's from Alexandria. Alexandria is a city in Egypt. And at the time, there was a huge kind of... uh, community of scholars, of Jewish scholars there. This was kind of one of the elite places to learn and to study the scriptures. Uh, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, was translated by 70 scholars, Jewish scholars in Alexandria. And so what we know of Apollos is that this is a learned man. This is somebody who has spent his entire life devoted to studying the scriptures. We also know that not only was he a follower of John, so he understood that the, the Messiah was at hand, that he was near, but that he recognized that that Messiah was Jesus. So what we see in Apollos is a very learned, very mature person who is a kind of a immature person in the faith, who understood a little bit of it, who believed, who had faith, but had an incomplete knowledge. And what happens is that Priscilla and Aquila take him alongside, and instead of basically just kind of exposing his error, making him feel bad about his error, they just expose the beauty and the greatness of the depths of Christ. They show him the deeper knowledge, and he immediately goes from there into that deeper knowledge and is sent out with joy and with passion. So what I love about the way they respond is they they didn't ostracize him because he didn't fully know. How often does that happen where we'll hear somebody say something about Jesus or about faith and they're just wrong and and we make them feel bad or we make them kind of cast out or kind of the other way that they could have responded to him but they didn't was just let him be and I just said, oh, you know, he means well. (laughs) He's not right. But he means well, and I'd rather not confront him and make him feel bad. No, they did confront him, but they did so in love, and they did so by not exposing his folly, but by exposing the deeper truth of God, of Christ. And he was moved from there into that. See, what I love about this is that it is Jesus who moves Apollos from kind of a, a, a small understanding of God to a larger understanding of Christ. But the way God uses that, the way God accomplishes that is through his spirit-filled community. It is through the relationships that form within his church. That this didn't happen by any other way than people in relationship coming alongside him and showing him a deeper and better way in Christ. You know, the truth is that this idea of what discipleship should look like is really not all that weird. We see it modeled elsewhere. For example, so in parenting, this is an example that I get to see all the time as a parent. I've got three kids, and they 
at different stages will have understandings of certain things, but not complete understandings of certain things. So for example, they know that toilet paper goes on the roll. They don't know the best way to do it. They don't know the right way. So I, as a parent, get to expose them to the right and better way of putting toilet paper on the roll, which is to go over, by the way. Amen. Thank you. We eat tacos in our family. We are a taco-eating family. But soft tacos can be difficult to eat. They can be messy. There is, though, a better way to eat tacos. Basically, we'll use your finger to kind of close the back while you eat through the front. And I got to teach my kids the better way to eat tacos. You know, the truth is, but we get to do this in more serious ways. We, when they're sad, we get to walk, come alongside them and explain, this is why you feel sad. Or when they're angry, this is why you feel angry. We get to come alongside them, and although they have limited knowledge, we as their parents, because we have walked through this before, get to help raise them and grow them and give them a deeper understanding of knowledge of who they are. We see this happen there. In music in my own life, and many of you guys who have kind of done a, any form of discipline are thankful for the teachers that walked alongside you. Like when I was uh, my son's age playing piano, I'm so thankful that my teacher kept on saying, curve your fingers, curve your fingers. Because playing with flat fingers, although it seems natural, it makes it really hard to play piano. So curve your fingers. I'm so glad somebody in junior high came alongside me and told me that ska music is the worst. <laughs> because it is. And I'm so thankful for that. Because I could have been left listening to ska the rest of my life. I'm so thankful they did that. There was a, a so the, the former worship pastor right before me, some of you guys have been here long enough to remember him, a man named Sean Johnson. I actually grew up with Sean. He was one of the worship leaders at a church that I grew up with, and I, I learned quite a bit from Sean. And he was a guy who kind of was this in my life as a worship leader. He, uh, I, I remember very vividly a conversation I had with him. We were kind of in the parking lot after a rehearsal, and I was just basically asking him, hey, how do I get better at this? How do I get better at being not just a worship leader, but as a musician, as an artist, kind of how do, we, how do I do that? And I remember he said to me, he said, great thinkers, or great artists are great thinkers. So if you want to become a great artist, if you want to become good at these things, you need to cultivate the discipline of thinking. And that stuck with me. That's something that shaped the way I've gone about my life. And it was because somebody who had a deeper knowledge of something came alongside somebody with a lesser knowledge of them and in love brought them and exposed them to a greater knowledge. I see this very practically at this church. So one of, the, one of the, the, my favorite things about being a pastor at this church is the community of pastors that we get to be a part of. That we are constantly shaped, challenged, brought up, and brought more into a more deeper understanding of who God is because of the relationships that we have because we meet every week and discuss the passage that we're preaching on. Because we meet regularly and kind of talk through what are our differences? Why do we disagree with this? And are these disagreements worth it? I have been shaped and changed by the conversations, the relationships that I've had because of the other pastors. This is something we see all the time in life. And this is how it works with Christ. It's that discipleship happens in spirit-filled communities. It's through those kinds of relationships that draw us in and expose us to the greater and better knowledge of Christ. So it continues. So basically, as Apollos goes from Ephesus to Corinth, Paul, who is in Corinth, goes to Ephesus. 
We're not sure. I, we think that they know each other, so they, there might have been some crossover. But we're going back now to Paul, starting in uh, verse 1 of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. So he gets to Ephesus and he meets what they call disciples. And, and, and I, we need to be careful because what they're referring to are not necessarily disciples of Jesus, but disciples of John. That was just how they referred to them. So these are probably people who were close, but not quite Christians. That's, I think, the, better, the best way of understanding this. They, they were close, but they weren't quite Christians. They were disciples of John. And it's important that we understand what was the, the baptism of John. And the best way is to actually look at how John defines it. So going back to uh, the book of Luke, we'll stick with the same author. Starting in, uh, in chapter 3 and verse 3. And he says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is referring to John the Baptist. And then coming down to verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, a lot of people believed that John himself was the Messiah. This is basically how he responds to this. He says, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So it says here, John says, I baptize with water. I bring a message of forgiveness, of repentance, one of preparedness. Basically, he was the guy that the prophet spoke of, the, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, that the Lord is coming. The Messiah, the great salvation is coming. It's not him, but he was there to prepare the way. So disciples of John, people that were baptized by John into John's following, were very, very, uh, basically people that kind of gave up all of the excess in life, gave up all of uh, the kind of comforts of life to return back to a very strict and humble understanding of the Old Testament as a way to basically prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. So they were very religious people, the disciples of John. It was very intense. It was not easy to be a disciple of John. They believed in the Bible. They believed in the God of the, God of the Bible. And they anticipated, as John spoke, that the time is at hand where the Messiah was here. So that's kind of who these disciples were. They were close, 
They were baptized even into John's baptism, a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. But it was incomplete. There was a better and greater baptism waiting for them. It was the baptism that came with Christ. And it was through that baptism that they received the Holy Spirit. And this is important because I think we get an insight into the nature of baptism a little bit in this and the nature of the Spirit and the interplay between the two. Um, this seems weird, and, and, and just as kind of a side note, as we read this, this, it's important that we are always asking the question of the Scriptures. Is this something that is descriptive, or is this something that is prescriptive in Scriptures? Uh, and this, there's been a few times where that's been relevant, but it's, it's worth mentioning again here. That what we're seeing, and, and there's problems that arise when we mistake things that are descriptive of something that happens at the time, for something that is prescriptive, which is something that the Bible writes and intends for us to do over and over again in that way and experience in that way. There's a lot of problems that arise when we mistake the two. And, and this right here is something that is descriptive. This is not saying that this is the way the Spirit manifests through baptism all the time, but this is how it had to happen then. And it happened that way for a few good reasons. One, was because at the time, it was important that they realized that this was the same Spirit. We've seen this before, when the Spirit falls on the Gentiles through Paul, or with Peter, and then later, once again, through Paul. That at the time, they didn't really understand the Holy Spirit. This is, although the Spirit's always been there with God, He's really shown up and manifests Himself more through the church. And so at the time, it was important that it was communicated that this is the same Spirit that came to the apostles at Pentecost, that this is not a different spirit, but this is the same spirit. This is, a uni this is God's unified spirit coming into all of these various people. So it was important there. Secondly, it was important that people understood that the Holy Spirit comes through Jesus and through Jesus alone. That being baptized into religion, being baptized into John, or being baptized into a morally good life was not sufficient for the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit comes only through Christ. That's why it's important that we kind of see this, and that's why it's written this way. And it seems a little weird. Also, I think because many of us have a, maybe a flawed or incomplete understanding of what baptism means. See, baptism was not something unique to Christianity. Christians did not invent baptism. Baptism was a regular practice, kind of rite of passage, for people. It's basically a way to bring somebody into a community. It's a way to bring somebody into a following. Oftentimes it was either based on somebody's teaching or a group of people's teachings. And what it meant was, yes, it was kind of a public one-time act, but it was saying, I'm leaving all of this. I'm leaving everything behind, and my new life is found in this community. In the teachings of this community or this teacher, my new life is here. That you are publicly declaring, now I am, as in this one, the disciple of John. I've left all these other things. I'm not a Pharisee, I'm not a Sadducee, I'm not any other type of thing. I follow John. So baptism was a big deal. It was not something people entered into lightly. And it really wasn't so much a thing that people did for themselves, but it's a way to enter into a community that is bigger than them. So... What's significant about that is understanding that this was a big deal for the disciples of John to leave their baptism. 
They had given up everything to follow John. This was their life. This was their community. These were their friends. This is kind of the way they conducted their lives. And it's not something they would have left lightly. Yet the moment they hear of the Holy Spirit, the moment they hear of the power of what comes through Christ, they immediately leave it. They immediately leave it and enter into the baptism of Jesus. And then they are, as it says, filled with the Spirit. And once again, this is one of those concepts that's challenging. It's challenging to understand, and there is a lot of debate. So I'm going to share with you something that I think is helpful in the way as we read the Scriptures and as we understand the kind of context of how it was understood then, something that is kind of helpful, and at least it's been helpful for me. I think oftentimes we think of the filling of the Spirit as basically like drinking water or some magic water, or maybe being bit by a magic spider that turns us into Spider-Man, or something like that. It's a very individualistic thing that happens internally within us, that we're filled, and now we have spiritual gifts. We end up focusing all of our time on our spiritual gifts and what the Spirit means to us. And unfortunately, that is not really an outgrowth of how it's taught in the Scripture, nor is it an outgrowth of how it's taught historically. That's really an outgrowth of how we understand culture. We understand it through the lens of individualism, which is kind of the guiding principle of our culture. What it meant to be filled at that time, what it meant to be filled, I think, historically, was more like jumping into the ocean. That, yes, we are overpowered by this. This does affect our lives individually, but it's not about the way it affects our lives. It's about the community that we're entering. We become a part of something much bigger than ourselves. So being filled with the Spirit is not so much about how it affects us as individuals, but how we as individuals come into a community in which God fills. And that changes things because then it's no longer about us. It's about the Holy Spirit and what He's doing in His community. And so that's what they're doing. And that was what was proclaimed to them. Said, yes, you have entered into this community through the baptism of John, but how is morality working out for you? How has this worked? That's the question that Paul is ultimately asking. He's looking at them saying, you guys are so close. You guys have so many of the right answers. But you are doing it not in God's power, but yours. He's saying, why don't you enter into the community that God dwells? Why don't you come and be baptized into the spirit who is filling his church? Because then it is by his power that you live, not by yours. It is by his power that you, man- that you go through your life, that you respond to God, that you grow in grace and in mercy and in love. Why don't you get baptized into that? And immediately they leave it. They leave it because they were exposed to something greater. That all other affiliations that they could have, all other clubs or communities that they could join, all other teachers that they could follow, none of them gave them God's power. None of them brought them into a community in which God actually dwelled. And when they recognize the greatness of the power of baptism in Christ, they are immediately moved to leave their old life, to flee that, give up all of their friendships, all of their affiliations, all of their community to follow Christ and become a part of his spirit-filled community. So in a different context, once again, we see that they are driven by love of a new affection in Christ towards a deeper and greater baptism. Last we see in the passage that was read earlier how this manifests there. 
And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is in verse 11 of chapter 19. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So not only have we seen people drawn deeper in by the greater knowledge of Christ and by the greater baptism of Christ, but now we're seeing them drawn in to leave their whole lives and follow Christ because of the greater power of Jesus. That Jesus is the greater power. So first, Paul, God is working in incredible ways through Paul as he's in Ephesus. And this is probably a a kind of a a story within kind of the greater context of what was right before of the two years that he's spending in Ephesus. But Paul, so much so that God is using even like the handkerchiefs that he touches. People would take those and people would be healed, not because of Paul's power, but because of the Holy Spirit working in power through Paul. And there's some local people there, the Sons of Sceva, which, by the way, is a great metal band name. So if you guys want to start a metal band, Sons of Sceva, great band name. But they're using that. So, and we've seen this before, and it kind of works out the same exact way it's always worked, where they recognize, oh, well, this seems to be working. Maybe we should stop what we're doing and use this and see if that will work. We've seen this before, and it never really works out for the people that do this. Because we can't use the power of the Spirit without the presence of the Spirit. We can't use the power of the Spirit without the presence of the Spirit. The reason it worked for Paul was not because he was a better magician or a better exorcist. It was because God's presence dwelt in him. Because Paul not not only had God's power, but he had God's presence. And the sons of Sceva and the other people who were trying to do this did not have that. They were trying to use him as a tool for their own agenda and for their own gains. And it did not work out for them. I love this line. Basically, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? First off, we just need to give a little bit of respect to Paul. The demons of the time knew who he was. but They didn't know these guys and it did not work out well for them. They get overpowered. They get overrun. What I think is so amazing is that even in this moment, God uses basically the victory of a demon-possessed man over people trying to conquer him to show the power of Christ. That it is this story 
that basically proclaims to the rest of the surrounding areas that Jesus is a true power and not one to be messed with. That he is the place where real power dwells. Not in any of these tricks of the magicians or in any of these kind of conjurings that they're doing. But that Jesus, the power that is in his name and in his presence, is the real, true, and greater power. And that's ultimately what brings people to him. So much so that some of the magicians at the time come forward and they bring their books to be burned. Now, a few things. Books were very, very, very rare in those days. It wasn't that we didn't have the printing press. We didn't have paper readily available. So for somebody to have a book, that meant that somebody actually wrote down all of the words in the book on paper that was incredibly expensive. So books were really rare at the time. And particularly books that seemed to have some sense of power, like these books seem to have had, were in more kind of pricey. They were more valuable, which is why we see that these were 50,000 pieces of silver, which if that sounds like a lot of money, it was. That was a lot of money, probably in our day and theirs. These were very valuable things. But what I love is kind of the way this worked was this is really kind of a functional baptism for these people. This was the way that they were publicly demonstrating that they are leaving their old life behind. They're leaving everything. They're leaving their allegiances to these things behind and are kind of committing themselves to the greater and truer power of Jesus. Now, I should mention, once again, this is something that is descriptive, not prescriptive. So next week, please do not bring your Harry Potter books. We will not be doing anything with them except for maybe reading them. Um, This is something different and unique in this setting. And I think, but it is significant what happens. It's significant because this was basically the way they chose to break free from the bondage they had to these books. These books were books of sorcery and, and, and magic and evil spirits that were oppressive. They'd been held captive by this evil their entire lives. And they're finally coming in and they're, they're burning them. They're saying, I, this has no place in my life or in this world ever again. I am now devoted to the greater and truer power that is found in Christ. Secondly, and, and there was kind of a question that I kept on kind of chewing on throughout the week. And that's why did Luke include that detail? This is something as we read, you know, the, 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 the writers of the Bible are actually fairly sparse in their details. Usually they're just kind of describing these are the basics of what happened. So when they include details like this that don't seem to be all that important, we know that they're doing it for a reason. And at first I thought they included the value of these books basically to show the, the incredible devotion and sacrifice of these followers, which maybe was a little true. It did take incredible devotion. It did take incredible sacrifice. But the more I thought about it, the more I'm convinced that the reason why Luke includes this is not to show the devotion of the followers and the sacrifice that they made, but to show the worthlessness of those books. That those books that were 50,000 pieces of silver to the rest of the world were worthless to these people because they now know Christ. They now know Jesus. They now know true power. 
The truth is, if something is valuable to you, you don't light it on fire. <laughs> That's just a general rule of thumb. You, you kind of keep it somewhere, or at least you sell it. You burn trash. You burn things that don't have any value to you. And that's what I think we're seeing here, is that to them, it didn't matter what they were worth anywhere else because they were worthless to them now. That this was no different than firewood or kindling or anything else like that because their greater knowledge, the greater power, the greater presence of Christ was now in their lives. And because of that, it expels their love and devotion to other things. I don't think it was hard for them to do this. I don't think there was lament in how they did this. I think they did it with joy because they finally found real power. And I think it's important why we understand why this was a greater power. This is a question that we've been asking a lot in the preaching collective, that's the thing that we go to kind of weekly to kind of talk through this with the other redemption pastors. And it's the question of why was this good news? Why was this greater power? We know that it was greater power because it manifests by actually casting out demons and healing. So we know that there was greater power through there. But I think they, they witnessed something else that they had never seen before, something that could not be replicated in any other power in their life. Because what they see in Jesus is somebody who is all-powerful, all-encompassing, completely transcendent, completely unaffected by us and what we do, and who is also completely good. He is also completely good. That not only is he completely sovereign and ruling over everything, not only is he completely in control, but he manifests himself in those ways in love towards his people, that he shows himself through mercy, that he shows himself through grace, that he shows himself in the true, deep and abiding love that we find in God. And I think that's why they're moved. It's not just because people are healed. It's not just because demons know their name and cower in fear. It's because they see a God who is both completely righteous and completely sovereign and who is completely good. And they're moved by that power. They are drawn by the love of who Jesus is. And this is what we've seen. We see Apollos was moved in love by the greater knowledge of Jesus. He was moved in love by the greater knowledge of Jesus. The disciples of John were moved by the greater baptism that we found in Christ, who brings the Holy Spirit. The Ephesian magicians and other people that lived in that area were moved to faith by the greater power they see in Jesus. All of them not moved by the worthlessness of these things, but by moved by the incredible knowledge and surpassing greatness of Jesus. Moved all of these ways through that. Their old affections were expelled by the new affection of Christ. And what I love about this and why I think this is so good for us to hear is we've seen basically three types of people. And all of these people, I think, reflect who's in this room right now. I think all of us can find ourselves in one of these categories. Some of us are kind of like Apollos, where we are Christians, we've been brought into faith, but we need to grow. We do not have a full understanding 
we read the Bible oftentimes and don't really get why it matters or what the significance of certain things is. We know who Jesus is. We believe in him. We have trusted in him, but we need to grow. I would say if you are a Christian, you are in that category at some place. And so we have to ask the question, first off, of what is motivating our growth? If we are Christian, why then are we growing? Why are we coming here? Why are we participating in this? Some of us, it might be because we feel a sense of duty, or maybe we feel guilt for not participating in this. We feel like, oh, we have to just because this is what we're supposed to do. We're Christians. Or maybe we come because we like it. We are entertained by it. We like the preaching, or we like the music, or we like the friendships that we have. We like getting to come in this cool building and drink cold brew together. We might be drawn by those things, but we don't really see that here. Apollos doesn't grow in his faith because of duty. He doesn't grow in his faith because of entertainment or anything like that. He grows in his faith because he loves Jesus. He grows because he loves Jesus. So as Christians, we need to ask, ask ourselves the question, why are we here? Because the answer should be, it's because we love Jesus and want to know him more. Just as anything else we love, we want to know more. We are here, and that's what motivates our growth. That's what brings us in. And secondly, if we're Christians, we need to understand that we always need to be participating in this discipleship process. This is the way that God shows the greater knowledge of Christ. It's through the work of his people. Every single one of you has something to share with somebody else. And we need to, in love, walk alongside one another, correct one another when need be, receive correction when we are corrected and grow together in love because we love Jesus and want to know him more. Some of us are what I call the almost Christian or maybe we have left something and we've kind of come in here and we're coming because this is good for us or we like the, the moral structure that it provides or we believe in God but aren't necessarily sure about Jesus but we're kind of, we would at least call ourselves in this camp. And I would say if you were living in that I'm glad that you're here and I'm glad that you've come this far, but there is a greater baptism that you have yet to experience if you reject fully following Christ. That what you need to do is not just come to church, not just call yourself a Christian, not just be religious and be moral, but to follow Jesus, to give your life to him and come into that because the Holy Spirit, the thing that brings us all together, the that gives us the power to live out this faith, he only comes through Christ. Not through our religious devotion, not through showing up, not through anything else. He comes through Christ. And so I want to call you to the better baptism, the, the better presence that we find in Christ. If you are there, if you are so close but haven't fully jumped in, I'm asking you to jump in because there is a better life, there's a better community in which you can become a part of. And lastly, some of you guys are just, you're just not a Christian. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You either got dragged here by your friend, you showed up because you thought this was a new restaurant. Um, we've heard that before, that they drive by and think this is a new restaurant. We tell them to show up, we're only open on Sunday mornings. Um, maybe you're here, for, I don't know why you're here, but I'm so glad you are because there are powers that you're serving. You might not feel that. You might not know that. 
Some of you might be serving the powers of education and feeling like if you can just educate yourself enough, then you can be saved. Or maybe it's you can make enough money and then you can be saved. Or if you can just have enough grit and determination. Or if you can get a comfortable enough life. Or if you can rely in the love of your family or your friends. And you feel like those powers are good enough to save you. I want to just show you a better power. And hopefully you've seen a better power. That God actually has the power to heal you. He meets your failures with forgiveness and grace, real forgiveness and grace. He meets your fears with comfort. He meets your sickness with actual, real healing. Your loneliness with his presence, your rebellion with his righteousness, your oppression with his freedom. There is a greater power in Christ than anything that you can serve and worship in this world. There is nothing that works to save you apart from Christ. And although he could have done it so many ways, he chose to show himself to the world through love. And we get to come into the power that is both completely transcendent, completely overpowering, and completely good. And if you are somebody who has never believed in that, who has never wanted to go there, I'm asking you to just see it. See the new and better power that we can find in Christ and move towards it and come into it. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, that you are the greater power. Lord, that you are the one who is drawing us in faith, Lord, into a deeper affection for you. Lord, I pray right now, wherever we are at, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to see your beauty. Lord, you would open up our eyes to see the incredible power that is in you. Lord, and that wherever we we are at, Lord, we would draw near to you. Lord, we would submit ourselves to you. Lord, we would come and, and in faith follow you. Lord, we are so thankful for you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.